How many of you are here because your life at some point was changed by Jesus Christ? Many, if not most. Hey, show of hands, I didn't even expect that. I'm up here because at one point in my life, I was not following Jesus and didn't really have much of a concern to follow Jesus, but my life was changed, changed and changed in a big way by Jesus. Uh, many here, you raised your hands, changed and transformed by Jesus. In many of us, the change has been so thorough and so deep that we are now on a completely different trajectory than what we were on before Christ found us. Our lives have been reoriented, uh, redirected. The path has changed. Uh, for many of us now, our highest joy is to worship Jesus Christ and to obey Him. We long to make much of Jesus. He is our hope. He is our joy. He's our delight. He's our life. Uh, for many of us, we would say uh, that if we were to gain the world and gain all the things that the world dreams of, all the finances at our fingertips, all the comforts uh, that we could have at our disposal, if we would gain all those and in gaining those lose Christ, it would be utter tragedy. Utter tragedy. Because Christ has become all for us. Uh, we're not alone in this. As a church, uh, I wouldn't want us to imagine that we're the only people who feel this way about Jesus. That churches throughout the ages have looked at Jesus Christ as their purpose for life, as their Lord, as their Savior, as their reason for living. Uh, they, too, were transformed by Jesus. They, too, were redirected and reoriented by Jesus Christ. And we get to, in our day, uh, be able to be here and testify that Jesus is alive. He is still at work. He's still changing lives. Uh, we, we have maybe seen it. Maybe you've seen it. I, I've seen it. People who are enslaved to sin be set free and forgiven by Jesus Christ. People are confused and they're lost and they're desperate and they're given purpose and meaning in life. I've seen people who've carried a burden of guilt and shame released of that by Jesus Christ, set free from that to serve with a clean conscience. You seen these things? I've seen people who are sluggish in their lives become rigorous servants, hardworking servants of Christ and his church. Former drug addicts finding their highest joy in giving themselves to the church people on the verge of suicide, utter hopelessness, finding Christ and giving their lives now in service to Him. People who had marriages falling apart, shattered like glass on the floor with no hope at all, only to see it pieced together by the living Christ, one per piece at a time, healed and restored and then serving. I've seen people who have doubted Deeply, the claims of Christ be turned into believers, skeptics, adopting the faith. People who are on the outside become inner parts of the church. I've seen these things happen. I'm sure some of you have too. Have you? It's thrilling. It's remarkable. It's part of what gets me up in the morning and gets me into my office and gets me into the book and excites me to preach. It's because Jesus really is alive. 
and he really has given the Holy Spirit. And the church really is on a mission, sent by him, empowered by the Spirit, and we get to see him at work. So many of us can testify this reality, and maybe you came in this room and you're not quite so sure. Maybe you don't have the same experiences. Maybe all those things I've just described are things that you've only heard stories about, but that you've never experienced. You've never seen anyone around you and change in such a dramatic way. Uh, Maybe you've, uh, even in your own life, begun to doubt whether God could do anything like that in your life. Uh, He could change your heart. He could change your relationships, your marriage, your household. You've maybe begun to doubt those realities. Or maybe even further than just doubt, maybe there's a skepticism uh, or even an antagonism to Christianity. Maybe there's people that this has been true of, maybe you're one of them, that you've gotten to know the church and what you saw you didn't like. Maybe there was hypocrisy. Maybe there was sin in the membership of the church that really hurt you. Maybe abuse in the leaders. I would understand your skepticism if that's all you've experienced in church. The amazing reality is that the, despite the failures of Christians for years and years, for centuries, even for thousands of years, the church of Jesus Christ has continued to progress forward unstoppably. And what I want to do and what we've been doing is going back and asking the question, how did it all begin? Some of us really like our comic books. And in the comic book stories, you get your origin stories, right? You get to hear how it all began. Go to the very beginning. How did this superhero get his super strength? How did it happen? And by telling the story from the very beginning, you have an appreciation for the bigger story. You understand why this all matters so much because of some things that were very part of the foundation at the beginning. Well, we're going to get an origin story of the greatest man who ever lived, who started the greatest institution that will ever be, Jesus Christ, who inaugurated the kingdom of God. We get to hear about that. Uh, Better yet, this is more than just fairy tale stories and comic book stuff. This is really happening, and you and I are parts of the story. I mean, this is thrilling when we think about it. That what Jesus inaugurated, what Jesus started all those years ago that we're going to read about and see some of how it all began, we have grabbed that baton and we are now living in line with all these people who have gone before us and faithfully have talked about Jesus and talked about his power and his work. And we get to look at the very beginning. So turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. If you're not already there yet, this is what we're going through. We're in a series Uh, We've just begun a few weeks ago uh, teaching through uh, the gospel of Mark. It's the gospel that tells the story of Jesus Christ in the most concise way. It is a gospel of action. It's been called the go gospel. It is one thing after another. He doesn't go into as much detail as some of the other gospels. It is the shortest gospel, but man, does it pack a punch. And we get to look at Christ in the gospel. And our prayer has been, and I ask you to be praying along with me, is that as we see Christ, we would be changed. As we see him, we would see again why he is so amazing, why he is so inspiring, why he has captured the heart and the attention of the world from generation to generation. Even people who don't like him can't ignore him. Well, what is it about this man? 
And if you've never come to embrace him, I challenge you to, to read along and to pray along with us and to ask for an open heart and to ask yourself this big question, who is this man Jesus? What has he done? What has he claimed? And can I trust him? Can I trust him? The next event in the life of Christ that we're coming to is really the first event in the life of Christ in Mark. And we're going to look at it in verses 9 to 11. It is the baptism of Jesus. The baptism of Jesus, verses 9 to 11. Before we actually get into the baptism of Jesus, let me give you a little bit more of the context, okay? This is all what happened last week. If you were here last week, you remember that we started by talking about John the Baptist's ministry. John wasn't a Baptist in terms of his denomination. Don't get that wrong. He was a Baptist or called the Baptist because he was known for baptizing. Uh, Some have said he would probably be better called John the Baptizer because he was distinguished by his baptizing ministry. He came as a prophet of God. Uh, You might remember that John is the last Old Testament prophet, even though he appears in the New Testament. You say, well, what did John the baptizer come to do? He says in his own words, or in the words of the prophet, that he came to prepare the way for the Lord. John is like a big bulldozer. John is like a plow, and he's clearing the way, he's opening up the way so that when the Messiah comes, the people will know, the people will be prepared, the people will be able to receive him. He's an odd man. He has odd clothing. He dresses like a prophet. He, got, he has that camel's hair clothing, that leather belt. He eats the locusts. He eats the wild honey. Those details are given to us because they all point to the fact that he was a prophet, an Old Testament prophet, and he's doing what prophets would have done. The people would have recognized the prophet's attire. That's why it says in verse 4 that all these people are coming to him and they're getting baptized. All the country, verse 5, of Judea and all Jerusalem are coming out to him and they're being baptized in the Jordan River. So this is what John's doing. Hugely popular. Now, let me get a little bit of geography here. This will help us out as we understand what's actually happening. John, it says, is baptizing in the Jordan River. Let's get a little geography. Up north, you can picture this in your mind, is the little Sea of Galilee compared to what's in the south is the big Dead Sea. Now, between these two bodies of water, there's the Jordan, about 65 miles as the bird flies. If you fly from Galilee down to the Dead Sea, you got about 65, 70 miles. That would be, if you're trying to figure out how far that is from here, if you want to drive to Palm Springs, it's about the same distance. Or if you're from Simi Valley, you would know it's about from here to Simi Valley. That's about 65, 70 miles. Now, this is the distance between these two regions, Galilee in the north, Dead Sea in the south, and between these two is the Jordan River. The Jordan River is a snaking river going back and forth, zigzagging. If you were to you know, go down the river in a boat, it would take you 200 miles uh, because that's how much it zigs and zags back and forth. John's ministry was probably up and down this river. His whole adult life, he's probably going up and down this river. He'd be up in the north near Galilee. Sometimes he'd be in the south by the Dead Sea. That's where Jerusalem was closer to. As people heard him from Jerusalem and Judea in the south near the Dead Sea, they would would come up. They would be coming north to John the Baptist, and they would be baptized by John in the Jordan River. You probably heard of the Jordan River because it appears a lot in the Bible. You probably heard about it in the Old Testament. As the people of Israel were passing into the promised land, what did they do? They had to pass through the Jordan River. It miraculously dried up and they went through it. Uh, You had probably heard about Naaman. 
whose leprosy was healed in the Jordan River, or Elijah, who was taken up to heaven near the Jordan River. Uh, You maybe heard about Elisha, the prophet, who had the axe head thrown into the river and it floated. His miracles, a bunch of miracles happened in the Jordan River. This is where John is. This is where he ministers. He's a wild man out in the wilderness preaching about Jesus Christ. If you remember, he preaches that Jesus is mightier. He's coming. I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals. He says in verse 7, he's, he's, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I can only baptize you with water. In other words, he's going to change you from the inside out. He's going to cleanse you. He's going to give you new life. The Messiah is coming. All I can do is point to him, but he's going to come and do the real work. This is what John the Baptist is doing. He's preparing the way for the Lord. He's preparing the way for the ministry of the Messiah. And now, as John's baptizing, we come to verse 9 and we pick up our next part of the story. Jesus appears on the scene. Verse 9, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came, out, came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. If I were to ask you, what do you notice about this text? You, you might name a number of things. There's a bunch of things you could point to and observe in this text, one of them would be this, that you'd notice the presence of the Trinity. Did you see that? There's three verses that we just read, and there's three divine persons mentioned here. You got the Son in verse 9, that's Jesus. You got the Spirit in verse 10, that's the Spirit descending from heaven. And you got the voice of the Father in verse 11, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Now, we're not going to have enough time to explain this. If you don't understand the Trinity, talk to someone next to you. I'm sure they can explain it to you in full, in detail. (laughs) Trinity is a mystery, but what we believe, uh, because the Bible teaches it, and the Bible is actually pretty explicit about it. The word Trinity is never used, but the Bible is very explicit in declaring that the Father, obviously, is God, and that the Son is God, and that the Spirit is God. And so here's what we believe. Here's the doctrine of the Trinity in a nutshell. If you want to write down these three points, It might help you understand it or at least explain it to someone. Number one, God exists in three persons. Uh, God exists in three persons. Secondly, each person is truly God. And thirdly, there is one God. These are not contradictory statements. The Bible is very clear that the Son is God, that the Father is God, that the Spirit is God, but they are not one another. They are not one uh, person, they are three persons in one God. They are co-equal, they are co-eternal, but they exist eternally in three persons. And each one of them right here is displayed in some way in these three verses. So here's what we're going to do. To unpack this text, three seems to be the magic number, so we're going to look at three points. We're going to look at the obedience of the Son, the descent of the Spirit, and the delight of of the Father. It's right there. The outline's pretty much already made there for us. So we're going to look at that and hopefully draw out what is really happening here. So first, let's look at this. The obedience of the Son. 
Now, I want to, you to jot down, if you're a note taker, just mentally take note of this. The obedience of the Son, my righteousness. The obedience of the Son, my righteousness. Verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. You know, Mark is just one of those people that doesn't give you much detail. You ask how your day is going, he says, he says good. I mean, this is, the, this is Mark. Mark is just interested in getting to the point. He, he just gets straight to the point. In, in Mark, there's no story of Mary and Joseph. There's no mention of Bethlehem. There's no mention of the inn, of the shepherds, of the wise men. Nothing about his childhood at all. Simply this, the first encounter we meet Jesus, he's coming from Nazareth. That's what we get. He comes from Nazareth. The height of John's ministry, the crowds are coming from Judea. That's, by the way, in the south. Judea, Jerusalem, that's in the south. Jesus comes from Nazareth. That's actually in Galilee. That would be in the north. Jesus is coming from a place that was very unknown. This was a place, Nazareth was not the sophisticated urban center like Jerusalem was. It wasn't where mainstream Judaism had its roots. He wasn't raised there. He was raised in a village that was away from any kind of busy trade route. He was off in a small, simple place. There was a synagogue there, we know, in Nazareth, so there was a little bit of uh, presence of people, uh, but it wasn't a big-name place. In fact, uh, this is how unknown it was. This is never mentioned in the Old Testament. Never anywhere does the Old Testament mention Nazareth. It's not mentioned in the Talmud. It's not mentioned in the Apocrypha. It's not mentioned in Josephus, who's a historian. It's not mentioned in any of those ancient documents. Nazareth was uh, an essentially unknown little village up north, not next to any major trade area, not next to any major metropolis. It's kind of off the beaten path. This is a podunk kind of place, out in the boonies. This is where Jesus is raised. In fact, uh, the one, uh, another place where Nazareth is mentioned in the New Testament, and Nathaniel sees someone from Nazareth. Here's the Messiah comes from Nazareth, and he says this. You remember what he says? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Anything at all? Anything good come out of that little city, that little place? What, what comes from there? I'm tempted to make some comparisons with some of the other towns that uh, people are coming from. Maybe Palmdale uh, fits the description. Uh, does anything good come out of Palmdale? Uh, some of you, I'm sorry to offend. Uh, but this is Nazareth. This is kind of what it's like. It's just out there. It's, it's uh, uh, not that much significance. It's not prophesied in the Old Testament, mentioned in the Old Testament. 70 miles north of Jerusalem is where it is. Uh, this is a little bit of a distance away. Isn't this fascinating? Isn't this fascinating that the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, grows up in relative obscurity for 30 years? We, we know from Luke that this baptism took place right around the time that Jesus turned 30, which means that for 30 years, he lived under his father's roof as a carpenter, uh, probably in the wood shop, probably with those hammers and nails and those tools, just doing the work of his father. Uh, we don't have anything recorded in Scripture of that part of his life. Uh, we have a, a little story of him as a young boy and his, how he goes to Jerusalem and 
what happens there in those events. Other than that, we have nothing from his birth narrative up to this. He grows up in obscurity. The vast majority of the Son of God's life, we don't know anything about. We know a small fraction of the events of the life of Christ. It's said it takes about three years. We got about 90% of his life that we don't really know anything about. He's in obscurity. It's just unknown. We don't have any kind of Gnostic gospel that tries to recount some of these other stories of Jesus as a teenager or as a 20-something is not the Word of God. We just don't have any information on what Jesus did. All we get here, it comes, he's the age of 30, and he shows up, and he comes from Nazareth, and he goes to be baptized. I want you to just think about this for a second. Isn't it amazing that God does things uh, with people in relative obscurity? This is pretty, pretty frequently the way God works. It seems almost to be a principle in Scripture that mighty things that God does are not done in palaces. They're not done by kings and governments. Sometimes those people are used and they're part of the story. But wouldn't you notice that the vast majority of the work of God is done by unknown, unnamed, obscure people in obscure places. And this is how God the Son lived on earth for 30 years. Sinclair Ferguson wrote a book on church history, and he's trying to describe uh, the, the way the Church of Scotland got started. And so he's going back in history, and he basically comes to the conclusion, he says this, we don't know how the church began there. There's no, there's no documentation for how this thriving, vibrant, gospel-preaching, evangelistic, mission-minded church came in Scotland. All of a sudden, it just has a strong presence there in the 6th century, but we don't know how it got there. And he makes this point. He says this, he says, God loves to do things in obscurity. The incarnation and early years of our Lord's life underscore that principle. The one who created the heavens and the earth out of nothing has no need of publicity. Be encouraged by this. I actually think this is a matter for us who labor in obscurity to be encouraged. Some of us really long to do something that matters. We really long to be significant. And even, and even some of that is a godly ambition. We, we want to be used of God. We want to be helpful for His advancing kingdom. We want to be used. And then there's a load of laundry that needs to be done. And the diaper of that stinky kid needs to be changed. And the dishes are still in the sink and bills need to be paid, and i got to go to work tomorrow, and I think sometimes we begin to think that our labors in obscurity are meaningless, or that while we do those little things that we're basically waiting for something that we can do that will actually matter, and as long as I'm doing these little things, well, I really just can't serve very much, really just can't honor the Lord very much, i, I got to wait until some day, some magical, mystical day in the future where I can do something significant. Jesus lived 30 years in Nowheresville, and he did hammers and nails with his father. He was a carpenter, and I think in doing that, he validated, legitimized, regular, ordinary work that you can do it to the glory of God. So all of you who maybe long to do something great and significant, and you're going, well, I got to go to work, or I got to do this. 
Or maybe you moms at home wondering what is the significance of doing these routine, ordinary things again and again. Listen, there is as some, uh, one book has used this as a title. Yeah, I recommend you read it just because my wife read it and loved it. I haven't read it yet, but there's glory in the ordinary. The ordinary things God gives us to do are, are glorious opportunities to worship Him and serve Him. And it's not that we have to sit around and wait for some big event in life. He served as a carpenter in Nazareth for 30 years. 30 years. And he was worshiping his heavenly father in perfection. He was honoring him in everything he did. He did not wait around or he did not get anxious and and worry that he wouldn't be able to serve the Lord in that space. So he did that for 30 years. We come to verse 9, he, he then comes from this place that he grew up. He leaves his household with his mother and father, and he, he starts out as an adult. He'll only go back one time to Nazareth, or at least one time that's recorded in Scripture. In Mark 6, he goes back. No one believes that he's the Messiah. It says that he marvels at their unbelief. So he wasn't growing up in Nazareth as this celebrity figure anyway, uh, to the degree that even when he comes back, no one believes that he is who he says he is. Uh, So it says he can't do many mighty works there because they all don't believe him. And so this is the official I'm leaving home event. He he leaves home. He leaves Nazareth and he's heading down south to the Jordan River and he finds John. He finds John. And it says that he's baptized by John in the Jordan River. Baptized. The word means to immerse, a full immersion. It means to dunk. By the way, this is one of the reasons we don't splash or sprinkle or pour. That's a fusion. We don't do that to, uh, in our baptisms. We believe the word actually means to immerse. Uh, that's indicated also by the words, he came up out of the water. That means he had to be in the water. Uh, this is part of why we teach baptism is immersion. Jesus undergoes John's baptism He's dunked underwater. He's brought up out of the water. And this is reflection of the obedience of Christ. In in fact, let me just explain this in a little more detail and show you in Matthew. So you could turn back to Matthew chapter 3, where Matthew kind of gives us a little more detail what's happening here. In Matthew 3.13, Jesus, it says, came from Galilee to the Jordan to John. The language makes it clear he is on a mission to get baptized. He's coming for this purpose. He's not getting caught up in the the fervency of the crowd and all the excitement. He's like, okay, I'll get baptized too. He's on a mission. I'm going to, get, I'm going to meet with John and I'm going to be baptized. So, so he leaves his hometown. He comes and he finds John. And it says he came to be baptized by him in verse 13. 14, look at verse 14 in Matthew 3. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, but do you come to me? John understands exactly uh, what he's doing when he's baptizing people. John knows that his baptism is a baptism of what? It's a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And John's going, listen, I'm not going to baptize you. You don't need any repentance. John knew exactly who Jesus was Uh, at this point. He knows that he doesn't need to baptize Jesus. He's refusing to baptize. How about you baptize me? How about that? I'm a sinner. I need cleansing. You don't. How about we reverse roles for a second? You baptize me. 
um, in Jesus, uh, the indication by the language is that there's a little bit, John is really trying to prevent him. In verse 14, John is like, uh, he's having a hard time with this. And so Jesus and John kind of have this collision where these towering figures, this Old Testament prophet is encountering the one he's been prophesying about, and now they actually disagree on what needs to happen here. And John is going, I'm not baptizing you. And Jesus says, yes, you are. Yes, you are. You need to baptize me. And, and, and finally, what persuades John, look at verse 15, is this. But Jesus answered him saying, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. <laughs> Jesus is not going to be uh, convinced by John that he doesn't need to do this. He goes, I'm on a mission from my father. For me, uh, I need to do this because if I don't do this, I can't fulfill all righteousness. I'm here to fulfill all righteousness. John hears that and goes, oh, okay, uh, let's do this. Let's jump in the water. They go in the water. It would have been about 10 feet or so, and they would have gotten to the point where it's right up to their waist, and they would have right there dunked them, right in the water. And Jesus says he's doing this to fulfill all righteousness. Let's just talk about that for a second. Because this was, this was confusing. I mean, it was confusing to John. Uh, you, you talk to people and you ask them, why did Jesus get baptized? And people just have a hard time answering that question. If you're reading through Mark and you come to the point and you understand that this is a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and you see that Jesus is saying, I need to get baptized, you go, what? Why? Really, why? I mean, it's a hard question. You got to think this one through, which is why that phrase Jesus saying, it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness is crucial. Jesus came to be baptized so that he could fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean? What does that mean? Let's, let's think about this. In his life, Jesus is going to live the perfect, obedient, righteous life that God demands of humanity. He must Come. Part of the way Jesus saves sinners is not merely by washing their sins away, he does that, but also by providing for them a righteousness they could never have earned on their own. So not only is Jesus going to pay for sins on the cross, but he's also going to live a righteous life. He's going to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. He's going to fulfill the will of God in a perfect way. He's going to fulfill all righteousness in a perfect way. Why? So that those who by faith trust him can share in the perfect righteousness that he offers. See, God demands a perfect righteousness for you. No one will ever get into heaven unless they have a perfect righteousness. And the Bible is very clear that none of us have a perfect righteousness. If we're honest with ourselves, we have sin that we've committed. We have sin in our minds. We have sin in our hearts. We have not lived a perfect righteousness. We will not live in perfect righteousness. We are sinners. No one has the perfect righteousness that God requires. But what Jesus is doing in his life is accruing the perfect righteousness. He's fulfilling all righteousness. Why? So that you, by faith, when you trust him, the perfect obedience of Jesus is credited to your account. This is amazing. The obedience of Jesus is your obedience by faith. The righteousness of Christ 
is your righteousness by faith. All that he accomplishes in his act of obedience is credited to all who have faith in him. Not only are your sins forgiven in Christ, Christ's righteousness is yours. This is good news. How many of you have ever wondered if your obedience is good enough? And you've been discouraged. And perhaps you've even begun to doubt your own assurance of salvation. I've counseled people more times than I can count, people who are uncertain whether they've truly repented. And they look at their obedience and they go, my obedience is so frail. My, my resolve is so weak. My, the temptation in my life is so strong. The frequencies of my failures are too often. I hate to admit it. And we just go, well, how could it be that, that God would love me? How could it be that I could have a certainty before God? How could it be that, that he would receive me, a wretch, into his presence? And the answer is found in this, that Jesus in his baptism is telling us something. That he is fulfilling the righteousness that God requires of you. You will never have a perfect righteousness. You will never have a perfect obedient life. And God will not... God will not let you into heaven without a perfect obedience. So the question is, well, what do I do? The answer is, Christ has done it for you. He obeyed in your place. He did the baptism because even in your repentance and even in your baptism and even in your obedience, all of your obedience even is tainted with sin. As the Puritans used to say, even our tears of repentance need to be washed in the blood of the Lamb, but not Jesus's. He obeyed in your place. He was baptized in your place. He was uh, brought into obedience through uh, all the trials and all the temptations. Why? So that he would offer his obedient, to li- his obedient life to you freely by faith. The moment you receive him by faith, his obedience is yours and is credited to you and you are forgiven. It's almost too good to be true. Some of you go, I, I can't even imagine what it would be to to be treated by God as if I had lived the perfect life. What would that even look like? For you to be treated by God as if you lived the Christian life, and yet this is exactly what Christianity teaches, that there is not levels of righteousness before God. There is a one perfect eternal righteousness, and it is Christ's that is given freely to everyone who trusts Him. And the moment you trust Him, God treats you as if you had never sinned. Because in his eyes, you are wearing the robes of the righteousness of Christ. And that's the only way you'll ever get into heaven is by resting entirely on his righteousness. So did you know that? Did you know that? The moment you trust him, his perfect obedience is yours. The judgment you once feared is gone. And your acceptance of God is not based on whether you feel good that you performed well or whether you feel bad that you performed poorly. It's based on his righteousness. See, the righteousness of the Son of God is yours by faith. Believe that and rest in that, no matter how weak you feel. In fact, if you're weak right now, and you're wondering, man, does God really love me that much? I I seem to be a pretty bad Christian. I do a lot of bad things. I fail in a lot of ways. And if you've thought, man, I'm so weak, let me use the illustration that Martin Luther liked to use. He said this, imagine this. Two people have 100 gold coins. Both of them have them. One likes to carry their gold coins in a paper bag, The other carries them in an iron chest, but they both possessed the same entire treasure. Thus, he says, 
The Christ whom you and I own is one and the same, regardless of the strength or weakness of your faith or mine. You might be carrying around Christ in a paper bag and worried that that bag might break. Or you might be carrying him around in a strong chest that is safe and protected. But listen, if you have Christ, you have all of Christ. The whole Christ. All of his benefits. Every benefit. And you might be the weakest Christian in the room, but you have the same Christ as the strongest Christian in the room. You have all of him. He's all of yours. And so this is what the baptism is kind of leading us. He came to be our righteousness. He came to fulfill righteousness. That's what he came to do. He was baptized in our place, you could even say. Because even our own baptism would be a sinful baptism. And you look at the obedience of the Son with eyes of faith and say, that obedience is mine. It's mine. And therefore, my acceptance with God is, is total and, and, and complete because God sees me in His Son. And so He gets baptized. He comes out of the water. Comes out of the water. You can almost imagine the, the, the water droplets are still in His eyes and He's coming up from being Immersed in the water, verse 10 says, when he came up out of the water, he begins to see something. You see that? Immediately. There's that word, we'll see that word a lot. Immediately, as he's coming up, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Here's going to be our second point. The descent of the Spirit, and we're going to say, this is my power. The obedience of the Son is my righteousness. The descent of the Spirit is my power. He comes up. He's, he sees something. It's immediate sight. The water's clear and still in his eyes. There's still a little blurriness. He looks up into the heavens. What does he see? He sees immediately the heavens. This is referring to the, the high heavens, the blue sky above. He sees them. It says, being torn open. Ripped. This is captured better than the NASB translation or even the King James Version because those versions don't use as violent of a word. Uh, the ESV uses a word that I think accurately describes what's happening here. It's, it's being torn. The, the word that is used to describe it, the, the way it's opening, the, the tornness, is also used to describe the veil in the temple when Christ died. It ripped. This is a ripping open. This is a tearing open of heaven. Now use your sanctified imagination here. What would this look like? All of a sudden, he comes up and Jesus' eyes are open and staring up in the heavens and the blue skies, it's like, are being ripped open, torn open. And it would be hard to for us to even fathom what that would look like. But then, coming out of the heavens or the, the hole that is ripped open, he sees the Spirit descending on him like a dove. This is a visual event. John the Baptist said he saw it too. It wasn't in verse 32, John 1, 32, John the Baptist declares he, he saw that happen. He, he saw this happen. He saw the, the Spirit descend on him like a, like a dove. John says it remained on him. So it came down from heaven. It's fluttering down. The Spirit comes down. And, and I, I think uh, though not everyone agrees, I think this was a visual event that even probably people sitting around in the crowds would have seen. This is a confirming evidence that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. This is an invisible, a, a visible event. The, the, the heavens are open. The Spirit is fluttering down like 
a dove. This is mentioned in Isaiah 64, verse 1, by the way. Uh, it says, Isaiah prophesied, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Oh, it was the cry of the prophets. It was the longing of the prophet that the heavens would be ripped open and that the Spirit would come down, that God would enter His creation. And this is exactly what's happening. God is entering the world. As one commentator I read said, this is God on the loose in the world He created. Heaven is ripped open. And heaven's coming down. It says that he descended like a dove. Now this doesn't mean, if you were confused, that God the Son is the incarnate man and God the Spirit is an incarnate bird. This is not the case, okay? The third person of the Trinity is not a bird, an eternal bird, uh, shaped like a bird, none of that. The, the language actually indicates that the way of his descent was like a bird, not the shape of him like a bird. And so he's coming down, descending in a fluttering kind of way. And this word would have, if you were a Jew at the time, and you were familiar with the teachings of the Old Testament, you would have actually, uh, in your mind, gone back to Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, the creation happens, right? Speaks the world into existence. And there you have all this shapeless creation. It's not yet formed. And and in verse 2 of chapter 1, it says the earth was without form and void. And listen to this. Darkness was over the face of the deep. So there's waters there. And then it says, and the Spirit of God was hovering. Hovering over the face of the waters. That Hebrew word hovering has also been translated and is translated fluttering. It is used to describe what a bird does. Is it broods over something. The ancient rabbis who studying the Old Testament, even prior to the coming of Christ, loved to use bird imagery and even dove imagery to describe the work of the Holy Spirit. What's Mark doing when he describes that it's happening like a dove? I think he's drawing our attention to the creation. Just like in the creation, you had the, the creator. You had the, the powerful word that's creating and bringing into existence the creation. And then you had the spirit hovering, fluttering over the waters. You say, why, is it, why does Mark give us this imagery? Why does Mark lead us to think about the, the creation narrative? Here's what I think is going on. I think what's going on is this, that in Christ's coming, we have the inauguration of a new creation. Christ is coming and he will fix this broken world. He might even, you might say, restore or recreate the broken world. He's coming to put an end to the curse that has fallen on the world. He's coming to usher in the new creation. He is affirmed as being the one who can do this by the presence of the Spirit in his life. The entire Trinity is at work here. The Father has sent the Son. The Son is on the mission of the Father. The Spirit is empowering the Son to go and accomplish the work of redemption. All the triune persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, are there present as Jesus launches His public ministry. This is Operation Rescue and Redeem. And it's being initiated here. Father, Son, and Spirit together starting the salvation of God's people. I want you to, to look back with me in verse 8 in the chap, Mark chapter 1 where John was talking about what Jesus would do. And he says, I have baptized you with water, but he, that's talking about Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy 
Spirit. And here we see the Spirit descends on Him like a dove. It remains on Him. And we get this picture that this is the one who is the perfect man who will be perfectly filled with the Spirit. And He is going to then, as John said, baptize His people with the Spirit. He's going to immerse them in the Holy Spirit. He's going to give them the Spirit. And this is, in fact part of what it means to be a part of the new covenant people of God. In this age, as the church, Jesus has come, He's done His work, and He has released His Spirit on His church. That means for you, the moment you trusted Christ, the moment you received Him as your Lord, He gave you the Spirit. He baptized you in the Spirit. This is not something that you come to Jesus and then you got to wait and you got to hope and you got to pray for some further down the road experience where suddenly you get this, this baptism of the Spirit and now suddenly you can serve the Lord. The moment you believe, and even the weakest Christian, has been given the Spirit and the Spirit then rests on you. He, he baptizes you in the Spirit. That's what John said Jesus came to do. And listen, the Spirit is your power for life and ministry. That's what Jesus came to do, is to transform a people, gather them for himself, and the Spirit now works in his people to bring God glory. This is such good news. Are you in a situation that you feel is completely hopeless? That you feel that there's nothing that could overcome this? Let me ask you, do you doubt the power of the Holy Spirit? That Jesus came to give the Spirit to His people. And as we've come to Him, we've given the Spirit, and therefore, we have infinite power that resides in us. Don't take that the wrong way and go try to do, do uh, magic or something. Uh, what it means is that God has given us all that we need. He's filled us with the strength to obey the commands that He's given us in His Word. We have the Spirit indwelling us, empowering us to live lives of godliness, to walk by faith to convict us of sin and enable us for righteous living. You can live a righteous life. You know that? You, in the power of the Spirit, can walk in obedience. You know that? Are there sins that you just feel that are unconquerable? Habits in your life you feel are impossible for you to overcome? Well, not if you believe the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who indwells you is giving you the power to be able to live a life of holiness. But not only that, to, to live a life of holiness, but also the Holy Spirit indwells in you so that you can live a life of service to others. Recently, I was talking to someone who had gotten into a relationship with another a gal. It was an older woman and a younger woman that we had stricken up, stricken up a friendship, and they were um, trying to help each other out. They had members of the same church, and um, the younger gal had some issues that she was really struggling with, some questions about the nature of God and, and, and really just wrestling with some theological issues, some pretty heavy stuff. And the older woman had been a Christian for a long, long time, but had really never taken any step forward to invest in other people in discipleship. It kind of had just been you know, on her own, you know, she'd loved the Lord and, and worshipped Him in the church and read her Bible, but had really never just invested in discipling other women. And, and, and we were talking, and she finally said something I thought was really helpful. She said, you know what, I, I just I recognize this is not me. It's not me that, that's going to change this person. It's not going to be me who's able to help this person. It's not going to be me who's able to enlighten this person, illuminate this person. 
And in, in a real uh, act of humility, but of confidence, she said, it's going to be the Holy Spirit. It's going to be the Holy Spirit. And they began reading the Gospel of Mark together, and I spoke yesterday with her, and she said, it was so good. She read the Gospel of Mark, and there she was just being herself and just trying to point her to Jesus, and it was a powerful time that they had together. And she just has been humbled and go, you know what? I've always thought that I had to have all the gifts and I had to have all the know-how. I'm the one that needed to have all the answers. And I finally come to the conclusion, no, it's not me. I just got to point to Jesus. I got to trust in the Spirit and I got to believe He's going to do the work. I wonder if there's any of you who know that you're called to help others follow Jesus. You know you're supposed to help disciple others. That's the mission of the church, but you're so concerned you just don't have what it takes. Let me say something that's a little, maybe it will sound harsh, but I don't mean it to be. That's not humility. It's not humility to say that I don't have anything to offer these people. Sounds like humility. It's not humility. It's unbelief. It's unbelief in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's unbelief in the power of the Word of God. Jesus said as He came that He is going to be the one who baptizes us with the Holy Spirit. He gives us the Spirit. The Spirit descended upon Him, indicating that He, in fact, is the one who gives the Spirit. And anyone who trusts in Jesus gets the Spirit. In full measure, we are gifted the Spirit. He indwells with us. He never leaves us. He is working in us and through us. And therefore, we can serve one another and expect that the Spirit work in us. And so take steps of obedience toward people even though you lack all the resources to help them. Because you are not the one who has the resources to change. It's the Spirit working through you. And so invest in one another's lives. This is such a freeing thing when we get it. It really does humble us because we go, well, it's not going to be me who does anything to change this person. But it also, at the same time, it brings us low in humility. You know what it also does? It raises our confidence. Because we go, man, the infinite God who dwells in me, who's given me His truth, His word, His powerful, life-giving, sanctifying word. If those things are mine, I can serve other people and I can expect God to use me. What a privilege it is. Have you experienced it? To be a vessel that the Spirit uses, a channel through which the Spirit works, where you can kind of passively sit back and go, wow, He did that. And I was just a channel he did that. I was an instrument in his hands. There's so much joy in being used by God in that way. But this is what the baptism of Jesus reminds us of, that the Spirit was given to him. He is inaugurated and affirmed as the Messiah. And then we are reminded that the Spirit that he received to live his Christian life is the same Spirit that indwells you and me, church. What a joy. Now thirdly, let's get to verse 11. We're going to see here the delight of the Father. The delight of the Father. This is Jesus, the beloved Son. And here's the tagline. The delight of the Father, your joy. Your joy. The voice. Again, just like the Spirit was visible, I think this voice is audible. And it says in 11, A voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The the voice, again, along with the visual of the Spirit, is giving testimony 
to the reality of who Jesus is. We got that, right? The voice is affirming this person as the Messiah. It's giving evidence. I think, we got to think about, again, let's just visualize what's happening here. This no-name from Nazareth is coming down. Everyone else is coming from the south. He comes out of the north. He, he probably looks like any other Jew of his day. Dark-skinned, dark hair, probably under six feet tall, ordinary guy. His appearance would have dazzled no one. Okay? No one would have gone, oh, look, that's the Messiah coming. He, he looked ordinary. He looked ordinary. He didn't have a halo. He didn't walk around with some glow or anything. In fact, Isaiah 52 verse 2 says this, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He wasn't necessarily handsome even. No beauty, it says, that we should desire him. There wasn't anything in his physical appearance that would have made everyone go, oh, that's the Messiah. This might be why God is giving such dramatic signs, ripping heaven open, spirit descending, a voice from above. He just seemed so ordinary. He just seemed so normal. No one would have believed that he was a king. No one would have believed that he was the Messiah. No one certainly would have believed that he was the Son of God. No one would have believed that he had existed in eternity past and had enjoyed ages upon ages upon infinite ages in perfect fellowship with the Father. And no one would have known that in his mind dwelt perfect and divine wisdom when he walked into the waters. No one would have known any of that. And yet that's exactly who he was. He had created these rivers. He had created these trees and hills. He had created the very wilderness that he had walked through to get there. And he is now entering the water. No one has any idea who this guy is. And the voice from heaven declares, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. This is something worth chewing on. You got to think about this one. Just, just let your mind grapple with this and, and soak in all you can. The Father loves, delights in, is satisfied by, is pleased with the Son. The Son delights in pleasing His Father. You parents in the room have uh, experienced a, a faint echo of this kind of delight. I, I now have a son. It doesn't have to do much to make me well pleased. He's walking around with this big jacket on this morning. I just take a look at him. I just smile. I love that kid. I got three daughters. They don't have to do much to make me love them. I love them. I'm pleased in them. I, and then especially, I see them doing good things and obeying their parents and trying to serve others. If I ever see that in them, it just wells up with me a sense of delight. These are just little parables that we get to experience that point us to the great weighty delight that the father has in his son as he looks at his son obeying in perfect obedience the 30 years of obedience and then inaugurating his ministry in this baptism the father just it's almost as if he can't hold it in he speaks from heaven he tears open the clouds and he says this is him this is the one I love this is my delight this is my joy he's my son it says in John 17 that the Father loved the Son before the foundation of the world. The Father delights in and enjoys and is enthusiastic about His love for the Son. And now when many of us, when we have uh, children, we want good things for our children. We want their comforts. We, we want their, their security. We, we want their safety. And we might ask ourselves, well, what does God want for His Son? 
in all his perfect love, this beloved son, what does he want for his son? Here it is. The father wants glory for his son. The father wants glory for his son. God the Father wants every knee to bow. God the Father wants every tongue to confess. God the Father wants all creation, all invisible, invisible creatures to recognize the majesty and the wisdom and the worth of the glorious Son of God. That's what He wants. And that's why He speaks out loud, this is Him. Anyone who doubted, Angels, if you're watching, demons, if you're nearby, anybody who's around, this is the Son. This is my delight. This is my joy. This is my satisfaction. I love Him. He is to be worshipped and cherished and lifted up. We are to worship Jesus Christ, friends. That's why we exist as a church. We're here for Jesus Christ. And we are to share in the same love for the Father that we have for the Son, that His very delight and His love and His, His adoration of the Son should be our love, our adoration, that we cherish Him and we treasure Him. You say, okay, well, how does God get glory for His Son? This is what He does. He sends Him into the world as an infant. He puts Him in a little town off the beaten path called Nazareth. He lives a life of perfect obedience to the Father, and the Father in heaven just watches with delight the Son. The Son, in obedience to the Father, is doing everything the Father asks Him to do with perfect trust and resignation to His will. He lives the life that His people, you and I, could never live. And then He goes to the cross. And you could just imagine what's happening there as the Father who has only loved his son, who has ever loved his son, who delights in his son, now pours out his wrath on the cross on his own son. Can't even imagine what that would be like for a father to do this to his son. But it was what they had agreed upon. And the son willingly went there and the father crushed his son. Why? So that Christ could be raised from the dead and so that he could conquer death and conquer sin. And then as the glorified, resurrected Savior, he could redeem all the elect of God from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And then so that those people, the gathering of his people, could be his worshipers throughout all eternity. And when you and I get to heaven and we join in that great song of the great myriads of people singing, we will not sing, worthy is the lamb because I had a nice life. Worthy is the lamb because I got a big house and a nice car. You know what we'll be saying is, worthy is the lamb who was slain. He was slain for us. Because that was the Father's plan and that was the Son's will and that's how He redeems God's people. God gets glory for His Son by putting Him on this mission that starts in His baptism, leads Him to the cross, consummates in a resurrection in a glorified state and then a kingdom. We're here to worship Jesus Christ. And I don't mean here in this church. I mean here on this planet, here in existence. We exist for the glory of Jesus Christ and we were made for Him. We were made by Him. We were saved by Him. We were saved for Him. And let me ask you this. What are you living for? 
Is it anything other than Jesus Christ? We mentioned at the beginning that my life and, and hundreds and thousands of others have been changed by Jesus Christ. And the reality is that we've come to see that there's nothing else worth living for. That we were designed for this. Created for this and redeemed for this. To live in all-out passionate pursuit of glorifying the Son of God. Because that's the design of creation. That's what the Father expressed at the baptism and that is the purpose for yours and mine in our existence. And I wonder... Some of you living in dysfunction because your lives don't revolve around Jesus Christ. You've tried to make yourself the center. That will only lead you to misery because that's not how this universe works. This universe was made to be Christ-centered. And we could put all kinds of things in the center. Those of you who work, have you made your career center? Have you made attaining to a certain lifestyle the center? Parents, have you made your children the center? All of life revolves around these things. Be honest. What is the delight of your heart? The light of the Father is in the Son. And as image bearers of God, we are to be like Him in this way that our highest delight is in the Son of God. This is what the baptism demonstrates, that God has put His stamp of approval on the Son as the one to whom belongs all praise and all adoration and all worship. And if you do not delight in the Son if you do not worship Him and cherish Him and treasure Him, what do you do? You confess. You repent. You fall on your face before Him and you say, Oh Lord, my heart is numb and dry and dull. Help! I want to see His glory. And then you commit in your weakness to day by day pursuing Christ. Don't try it alone. That's why we have a church here. But we exist to orient our whole lives around the Son of God. May we do that with zeal and with joy for the glory of God. Let's pray. So Father, uh, we confess that we often center our lives around other things. And we don't center around Christ as we ought. And so we confess that our hearts are often numb, sometimes calloused. We confess that we need help. But we thank you that you have given us your Son, that he came for us, and that he has given us the Spirit who lives within us and empowers us, and that you've put us in a church that can help us. So Lord, if we are not living for the glory of your Son, we repent. We repent. And we ask that you would help us to rearrange and reorient our lives around Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.